Knock Central is coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. Good chat there in the first hour with Don Taylor. His take on uh, all of the big Canucks storylines. Quinn Hughes playing on the right side. Mm. Bo Horvat's contract. And Elias Patterson. Which we will now get into ourselves here. Uh, Jeff Rowe, loyal listener here on Canucks Central. And we appreciate it. Appreciate all of our loyal listeners. Comes in uh, listening live on the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. 85 points in 82 games for Elias Pettersson. Point a game is definitely not out of the realm of possibility, especially when you look at Pettersson's numbers after the All-Star break, was Mm -hmm. easily over a point a game, could be on pace for close to 100 if he's able to play at that level for an entire 82-game season. Well, Elias Pettersson spoke to media today, and he talked about his summer and how it went, plus a lot more. Have a listen. Uh, I feel good. I've had a good summer back home. Um, uh, had a long time like thinking about going through my last season and learn from it, and and uh, had a good summer of training too. So I'm pumped to be back. Uh, excited to see all the guys again, and yeah, excited to be back. Anything in particular you focused on in your summer in terms of working on something in your game? I mean, obviously, I mean, for me, it's always trying to get stronger, faster. Uh, and that's what me and my coach back home been working on. Um, so I think, um, yeah, that's basically what I've been doing all summer. You mentioned learning and reflecting on your season. Was there anything you took away from it? I mean, obviously, I mean, we can be honest. My start last season wasn't... The way I wanted to start, and I was just, um, I grown from that and learned, like, why it happened, and then why I had the second half of the season, why I played like that, and was basically, it's two different me's out there, and I was just playing with a lot more confidence in the second half, so, um, but, I mean, I'm, I'm, like, somewhat happy I went through it, because, uh, I know how I got out of it, if that makes sense. Some of that wasn't up to you, though. I mean, you were dealing with the wrist recovery and the wrong stick and things like that. Yeah, I mean, not really. I mean, I wasn't feeling, I mean, I wasn't uh, playing with as much confidence as I always been. So um, with all the answers in hand, I'm, I'm like... It sucks it happened, but I'm also like glad it happened because I I got experience from it and I took myself out of it. You look sharp out there today. Do you feel like you're entering the season a little bit better? Uh yeah, uh, yeah. I, I hope so. <laughs> 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 um, no, but I uh, I had a good summer training. Um, didn't really <clears throat> go on any vacation. I was just uh, working out all summer, trying to prepare myself as much as possible. So. Scrimmage felt good. Still a little jet lag. Woke up 4 a.m. this morning. Um, but um, felt good. Uh, felt a little rusty today with like conditioning, but I know I will feel a lot better tomorrow. And it nice to have that, that clear mind this year. You don't have the injuries. You don't have the contract situation hanging over your head. It's nice to come in with a clear mind. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, that was. Um, I mean, I didn't have a training camp last season. I came in. Expectations were even higher, as they should, but um, I was just, 
um, focusing on the wrong things or what people want to see from me instead of just focusing on myself. I mean, I don't have the exact answer why it happened, but I like to think I've learned from it, and I'm obviously I feel I can tell I just feel a lot better uh, coming into this this season. One thing that young players always seem to have to learn is that there's actually so much more in them. Do you think you've had that realization that you can go even? Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, last season I had I learned a lot that uh, no matter how good I played, the first two seasons or uh, third season was, was kind of slow stuff. But like, doesn't matter how good I played. Like to say, the first two seasons, you still gotta have that same hunger, or how should I say? I mean, I was um, training hard coming into like uh, my so last season, but I was just uh, letting things get inside my head. But I mean, I I learned from it. So I'm still learning. So um, just trying to see the positive. There is Elias Pettersson uh, speaking with media today at eight ranks after a informal Canucks scrimmage in the lead-up to training camp. A lot of interesting things to parse through there with Pettersson. And we've heard him talk about uh, maybe paying attention to the noise too much uh, in the past, Sat. So that's clearly Mm -hmm. something he continues to work through as a young player. Not willing to take the risk in, wrist injury as an excuse still for the reason he started slow last season. But there is just a, a confidence in his tone yeah, that he feels he's had a really good summer. Yeah, I mean, preparation makes you confident. And yes. I always, I'll never forget what Henrik Sedin said when we asked him about confidence once. He said, the only reason you're unconfident is because you don't feel like you're prepared enough. Mm-hmm. If you're prepared enough, you should have confidence. It's like, yeah, sure, sometimes you feel better about yourself than others as far as your confidence goes. But you should never be, be without confidence if you've done all the right work preparation-wise. Because if you've done all the work, then you'll figure it out. But if you haven't, you're not feeling as good about it. And I, and I wonder last year, part of it from Pedersen too – even though he worked hard, he probably knew he wasn't quite as prepared as he needed to be, whether that was health-wise, mentally-wise, just whatever it is. And, and, you know, you hear JT Miller talk about mindset. What he, talk, what he means when he says that, and you hear other athletes talk about it, is, is just how you approach something mentally. Like, how prepared are you mentally for what mm-hmm. you're going to go through and how you're going to take on those challenges? And how do you, do you know what type of player you need to be? It was interesting he mentioned that he was trying to be what people wanted him to be. Yeah, and I don't know if that's necessarily at fans or whatever it is, or but I think he had it in his mind that when I'm struggling, this is what I need to do to be successful, or people are expecting to see this from me. Well, you don't have a plan. What you're doing is you're reacting, and I think him going into it having a plan, being prepared, should have him get off to a good start, and he shouldn't have issues with confidence this season. The the confidence part is, I think, a large. When I look back at Pedersen's game last year. We've talked about this, like when Pedersen's on, what is he doing? Uh, what makes him a special player when he's going right? All, like a lot of it stems from confidence. Mm-hmm. It's his ability to, to not really control what's happening on the ice, but control what's yeah. what's happening on the ice. Well, and, he plugs into the matrix. Yes, dictate play. You like to say he plugs into the matrix yes. and is able to. Uh, you know, dictate the way that the game 
happens and how he can impact it. it, it it's it's so clear when you watch him that he just wasn't confident in his ability to get to spots mm-hmm. in and he wasn't convicted in what he needed to do on the ice to have success. You know, he would try to dangle around a player and it wouldn't work or he'd try to go to through two or three guys or it was just it looked messy. Yeah. And when Pedersen's going, it doesn't look messy. It looks easy for him. Well, he was forcing a yeah. lot, right? And the thing we liked about him so much the first couple of years was the maturity he played with. And him knowing the simple play is fine. It's, it's not about making the fancy play. It's about making the better play. Yeah. Sometimes the better play is a simple play, you know? And But he, he was so good at knowing when to do what. There were times he dangled the guys. Remember the goal against Ottawa? The hat trick mm-hmm. goal? You know, he dangles through a bunch of guys, goes through the neutral zone and scores because that's what he could do. That's what what he was given. Other times, he would just pass the puck and move and take it back, do a bit of a give-and-go situation. So he's one of those players that he will take the better play as opposed to doing the flashy play. And what he did where he, when he got away from his game was he was forcing things, to your point. And that's what was so odd about his struggles last year. It's like, this is a player, when he's on... He's so fluid as yeah. part of the game. He's so mature, and, he, and he's just such a complete player when he's out there. And and here he is looking like, you know, the forward version of Bambi. It's like young Alex Edler again, <laughs> but in the forward group, just falling over, right? Tripping at the blue line, trying to dangle guys, gets in trouble. It just wasn't there. And yeah. once that clicked, you saw the next level from him. And you know, everybody matures differently. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't want to get into the psychoanalysis thing, but... You know, people go through different things, and, and they need certain reality checks. And I just wonder, and we've all been in our early 20s before, or mid-20s, or times where you kind of get a reality check, whether it's in life or whether it's in um, your line of work or school or whatever it is, where you thought you had it figured out, and then, you know, you get smacked upside the head. You realize, oh, damn, life life can be challenging. This is this is not easy. And I think Pedersen kind of had that. And if he's a mature kid, he gets over that, and he's going to be a lot better this season. If he doesn't, well, then it, then you can start asking questions about like, where's this all going here. But I have no reason to believe he's not going to have a good year. And I think what you heard from him today yeah. is a very positive sign, and him being honest about it. He was very honest and has been very honest in the past. But uh, again, you can sense a confidence there from from Pedersen and. He says he's sort of happy to have gone through what he did last year. So it's uh, sees it as a building experience now that it is behind him. So what's a Pedersen breakout look like? Do we talk about it as a breakout season? A guy that has at different points of his career scored at a point per game pace? Is there a breakout level for him to get to? What is that? What does that look like? Is it simply just playing 80 games and scoring 80 points? Is it a little bit more than that to you? What does a Pedersen breakout season look like? I think uh, point production-wise, one thing that I'm trying to figure out, and we'll talk to Kevin Woodley about this a bit uh, tomorrow as well when he always joins us on Wednesdays, and we talked a lot about you know uh, last year or two and how uh, he's had some struggles in the past. Uh, I mean, the, the team has had some struggles. So one of the things that I wonder about is, is scoring actually going to stay up in the league or is it a bit of an outlier year? 
Because if it's, if it's a bit of an outlier year, then just in general, we shouldn't be expecting as many gaudy numbers across the league. And that should, you know, play a factor into your point projections for most players. And that includes Pedersen and everybody. But if this is what it's going to be from now on, and I'm skeptical that we're going to see as much offense this upcoming season, then I think it should be fair to expect 90 plus points. Yeah. Not just look at point per game. Because that's where the trend in the league is now. There are a lot of guys in 100 points, a lot of guys plus 90 points. You know what I mean? Like, it it kind of took that step. So I'd like to see him get to 90 points and do everything. I think that's where the trend goes. If we see that line come back a bit, then point per game and, you know, being an elite two-way player, then that's aces as well. So I think part of the production to me is based on where the league is going. It's relative to, you know, where scoring is going to be overall. But I see no reason to believe why he shouldn't be a point per game. And why he shouldn't set another career season where yeah. it's plus 30 goals and he's he, he surpasses a 70-point mark. Yeah, I think 35 goals, 40 goals is maybe the ceiling yeah. uh, of where I could see Pedersen getting to. But, it, it, you know, I always think of raw totals and sometimes they are a bit arbitrary because, you know, shooting percentage is a thing yeah. and your role in a team's... Um, setup is very important as well. One thing about the Canucks power play that makes it or made it so special last year or made it one of the better ones in the league is that Pedersen was the idea of the trigger man, but wasn't actually Not always the trigger man. He was as much a decoy as he was the main trigger man on the power play that you know, low to high play comes open so often because teams mm-hmm. are cheating to cover for Elias Pettersson and it opens the shot for Bo Horvat. But, you know, one thing why Alex Ovechkin scores so many power play goals, like the Capitals really force him the puck on their power play unit. You look at how they performed as a unit, the Capitals were nowhere near as effective, as efficient on the power play as the Canucks were. So it's it's not necessarily a good thing to force feed the puck to Pedersen, but to continue using him as a decoy at times, but also when it's open, you use it as the big shot. Well, I mean, in Washington, it's not it's it's important that Ovechkin scores the goals. Yes, it's important that he scores the goals. And this is not me criticizing Ovechkin in the Capitals, but it's very clear that a big focus is him getting goals. It's my Cristiano Ronaldo argument, you know. But 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 for them, they want a Stanley Cup. Right, yep. which is all great and all that sort of stuff. And but they've now, still been a great team. But now he has a chance of breaking Gretzky's record as well. It, that's not only big for him, that's huge for the organization. It's huge for the NHL. It is. Like, so, But the focus for that team isn't... I shouldn't say it's not to win the Stanley Cup. It is. But the focus on that power play is get Ovechkin goals. Yes. If the focus was just score, maybe they're even more prolific than they've been, right? But that's what's going on over there. Here, I still want to see Pedersen, Dan, be more than a, than a shot option and a decoy. Because I don't think that gets the most out of his playmaking ability and his vision if he's essentially just either but shooting the puck. But if he's getting you a top ten power play, then, I get it. No, hundred percent. I'm not. I'm not against. It. I'm saying it works. But you yeah. are. But I don't think they have still fully explored what everything Pedersen can do on the power play. Yeah. So the point that that I that I want to make here is I want to see him not just load up for the one timer, creep in sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Creep in and try to take a guy on, beat a guy. Because once you beat a guy. Then everything opens up. You yeah. know what I mean? Those are the things he's capable of doing. I, I want to see him do more than just be the decoy at times. And if he can do that, I think the power play can get even better. Mm-hmm. Because now you're adding another layer to the dimension that he provides on that wall. 
and that could open up even more things because one of, one of the things I think Boudreaux wants to see is them shoot the puck more. But the essence of shooting the puck is to create chaos because that's what happens. You don't know where the puck's going to go. Guys get out of position. Yeah. That's what happens. But if you beat a guy one-on-one, that's going to create chaos as well because that's going to drag somebody else out of their space. So if, if you have that's a guy... David does so well on the power play. Precisely. And I'm not expecting Pedersen to do that. Yeah. But if he can do some of that and use some of that talent on... On the half wall there, I think it adds another layer to what they're doing doing as a unit. Ultimately, though, you know, like the whole, like, hey, he could score 40 goals. You know, if he's not going to be the main trigger man all the time yeah. on the power play, you know, there's there's some things that help guys get to 40-plus that, you know, just don't really, and haven't been a factor for Elias Pettersson uh, as much to this point in his career. But there's still a, a huge point potential for him. And, you know, does that mean I'm jumping to 100 points? You know, to me, and the way JT Miller describes it, I think, is is apt. It's like, you know, I know when, when I'm going with my game, I'm going to get points. So whether it's 99 yeah. or 85, it's... I'm going to get points. It, it, it's just, it is what it is. But I have to be playing a certain way to be able to be productive consistently. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's the main thing you want to see, but for Pedersen it's also bringing his whole game to the forefront. And that's being a dominant two-way force as well. Yeah, I mean that's the biggest step he can take. Like he has the most two-way potential of any Canuck center. Not even close. I mean he is yeah. one of the most two-way for, for young centers in the league. He's he's up there in terms yeah. of two-way potential. I mean there there's so much there that he can accomplish and if he does take that other step and become the type of player that really wins his matchups and goes up against anybody plus he scores over a point per game, now you're getting into the territory of some of the best two-way players in the game. And those guys are winners, the best two-way players in the game. And that's why, you know, I've hyped Pedersen. I've been, you know, so bullish on Pedersen is because he has the ability to be that Pavel Datsuk type. You know, I'm not saying he'll be Bergeron because, I mean, Bergeron is maybe the greatest two-way center of all time. But a player of that mold, be close to a point per game, but it'd be excellent as a two-way center. What, are the, what, are the, what do those guys do? Yeah. They win. Mm-hmm. That's what those guys do. And ultimately, that's what you want to see him get to, to be an elite two-way player that way. And if he does and provides the offense he can, I mean, we talk about Brock being the best, being the favorite to have a career season. I think Patterson's the favorite to, to have that superstar season for the team this coming year. The uh, <laughs> the, the Pavel Datsuk... Um reference comp has followed Pedersen around, but I've always felt like it's been mostly because of the dangles, you know, and the stick handling ability. People, I think, forget just how great a defensive player Pavel Datsu was. I I think more casual hockey fans forget that Pavel Datsuk was one of the best defensive centermen of of his era in the NHL. Yeah, I mean... he won, what, three Selkies? Yep. Three or four? Three? Um, I don't think he ever hit 100 points, but he had a few 90, high 90-point seasons. He's always kind of around the, the point-per-game mark for his career. Yeah, 918 points in 953 yeah. games. And one of the things about Datsuk, which was really interesting, was it took him a couple of years to get to that level. You know, his rookie season was okay. Second season emerges. And the third season is really when he came onto the scene as a big two, two-way impact type of a player. But everybody knew that Datsuk, Datsuk could score more. Mm-hmm. You knew that Datsuk, if you wanted to, could be a 100-point player every single year. 
But his focus was be the best player on the ice when you're out there. Yeah. And he was. I mean, the guy, he was an absolute menace um, on the forecheck. And he would turn pucks over all the time. And when Pedersen's on his game, you see him do that too in the neutral zone. He's turning pucks over. He's on top of forwards coming in. He He's pressing defensemen. And that's why the Datsu comparison really came out that first season. And I don't want to draw comparisons to specific players, but my point being, if he can be a point-per-game Selkie type of player, that has huge value. I mean, it's it's one of the best in the game. Uh, it's an interesting part of Pedersen's game that we could see evolve more this year. And one, I think, really helps the Canucks in a lot of different ways because Miller, as much as... He says he wants to be better defensively. Horvat, when he spoke yesterday, said he wants to continue working on his own game in his defensive zone. Pedersen has the best chance of really excelling at both ends of the rink. I mean, that's the Hughes had that year last season. Yeah, where he went from you know being really good offensively to putting together with defensively, and there's another level he can take. And we saw that from Pedersen before, but it's like really take that maturity step that Hughes took last year. And uh, I think it's a huge part for all of the centermen. Um, you know, we know, like, when it comes to the breakout and the transition and, and being successful defensively in your own end, the centermen will have such a major part in that role. And the Canucks are going to need Pedersen, Miller, and Horvat all to be better if they want to play that quicker transition game that I think Jim Rutherford and and, and Patrick Alvine talked about last season at mm-hmm. the end of last season and if Bruce Boudreaux is going to be successful along with Mike Yo and the rest of the coaching staff in implementing the sort of transition game that they would like to see here in Vancouver because a lot of that flows through the middle of the ice. Uh, it's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. Coming up, the St. Louis Blues made a big bet on Jordan Cairo today, getting an identical contract to the one Robert Thomas signed earlier this year. Luke Korak, NHL.com, covering the St. Louis Blues, is next on why the Blues are hitching their wagon to these two young players. And we'll also discuss eight-year deals and why they are so in vogue right now in the NHL offseason. That's next, Sportsnet 650. Canuck Central live from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star, 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 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. Throwing a little Booker T onto the uh, the ad read there. Selling Kintec. it. Yeah. Nicely done. Getting amped for the season. Uh, NHL uh, is always interesting. Like, contracts that get signed. Jordan Cairo getting an eight-year deal with the St. Louis Blues happens today. Rob Thomas got an eight-year deal. I I can see why the Blues did that with those players. They had really strong seasons last year. Cairo is a player that plays at incredible speed. Had great moments last year. Real offensive play, uh, you know... Uh, difference maker, and Rob Thomas has become one of the better playmakers in the league. And then, yeah, Tim Stutzler was a third overall pick, but what has he really shown to earn his eight-year deal yet? I think there's more question marks there. 
There's also some veteran players that got eight-year deals. We'll talk about that. But first, let's get a look at why the St. Louis Blues are hitching their wagon to these two young players. Lou Korak from NHL.com joining us now. Thanks for this, Lou. How are you? Good. How are you guys? Uh, we're, we're doing well. Uh, Jordan Cairo getting the uh, exact contract that Rob Thomas signed earlier this year, $65 million over eight years. Um, it, it's funny. Sometimes we, we question you know a team going this far with this type of commitment for a young player. I don't feel there's a lot of doubt that St. Louis is going to get value on Jordan Cairo. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think you can make the same case for Robert Thomas as well, and I think that's why it's amazing when I was looking at it today and just the breakdown of the contract. I mean, it, to the minute detail, every each one is exactly the same from, you know, no trade clauses, uh, when when they start, when they end, uh, the salary per year, that just kind of tells you how the Blues value each of these players. They they value them equally. I mean, they are different players. One's more the playmaker. The other one is more of the uh, the flash and dash kind of a guy. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Jordan Cairo had himself, uh, I guess, uh, both of them did really. Uh, and we're talking about Cairo since he got his today. But had his breakout year last year, and uh, I – I honestly think there's more to be had there. I mean, he had a 27 goal year last year. He was a point, you know, point per game guy. Is there more to be had? Yeah, I think so. Can he is he a guy that will eclipse 30 goals? Absolutely. I believe that'll happen. Can he reach 40? To me, that probably is the biggest question and I believe he can get there with the right components and uh for things to fall into place. Um I think Robert Thomas is more of a well-rounded player just because of his uh, defensive prowess and uh, Craig Berube's uh, insistence and uh, and trust in him to uh, put him in late-game situations to protect the lead, to win a face-off. We saw that a lot last year. Uh, that's an area where Jordan Cairo can definitely use some improvement in his game. But from an offensive standpoint, guys, i got to tell you, I mean, I, th- I think they have a uh, – I think they have a diamond in the rough player here, a, a guy that's only going to get better. And uh, these are these are guys that uh, I don't want to say it's a turning over of the new leaf yet because, you know, you still have some core pieces here that have been part of a championship team. Uh, but I think this is a sign that uh, they are moving ahead with these two players uh, as, as their cornerstones moving forward because at some point in time, you know, the Tarasenko's, the O'Reilly's, the Braden Shen's, even though Braden Shen's still – you know, he's right in the heart of his contract, but some of these guys that have been around, uh, you know, they're they're not going to be around as long as the Thomases and the Kairos, and these are the guys that they are banking on now to carry this franchise forward. And what I find really interesting, you kind of looking at, you know, this Blues roster and the Blues forward group as a whole, I mean, they have so many players that are so versatile. I know Kairo really played the right wing last year, but has played down the middle before. Tom Rob Thomas plays multiple positions throughout the course of a year. I mean, look, Barbashev does the same thing. I think that just gives that forward group so much versatility and flexibility to do the, have the different looks and have guys play in different positions. And to your point, a guy like Kairo, there are so many positions you could still put him in where he can maybe excel even more. So I'm really curious to see, you know, what else they do with him this coming year and beyond. Well, I mean, he's going to continue to get more opportunities uh, on the special teams. I mean, coming coming up and in, into the system, and when he, you know, first got his feet wet, uh, played a limited number of games the year they won the Stanley Cup. Uh, you know, last year obviously getting more ice time there, but. 
I'll tell you right now, Craig Berube was uh, not a guy that that wasn't afraid to pull the ranks on him when he felt like that uh, he wasn't playing a complete game. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's something that uh, you have a coach here that's going to bring out the best in those guys in those kinds of players. And, uh, you know, Again, as I mentioned earlier, does Cairo have room to grow from a defensive standpoint? 100% he does. Uh, I think we're seeing the evolution of that with Robert Thomas. And Craig Berube is the kind of guy that when he constructs his forward lines, he likes to have two centers on each line just, just, for, the, just for that because of the versatility. And I think that's the way the game is going right now. And these are, these are all players, like you mentioned, that uh, – can play in multiple positions, and that's why I think he's not afraid to utilize some of these guys in different areas. But I just think that Kyra is going to continue to get more opportunity uh, where the points are going to come from on on the power play simply for the fact that you no longer have David Perron there, and somebody's got to account for the 27 goals that Perron scored, and, and, and a lot of his damage came on the power play. That's one area that the Blues are going to count on, on these young guys to be able to pick up that production. Ryan O'Reilly's still got a, a year left, and and we know uh, how big of a part of this team he is. But uh, is this uh, you know the start of this being Kairou and, and Rob Thomas's team sort of thing? Yeah, I think it. I think it is, and you know, just uh, in Doug Armstrong's uh, way of showing, you know, just the direction that he went with these contracts. I mean, eight years is a lot. I, I understand that these guys are you know, just now scratching their potential and they're in their early to mid twenties, but still to commit anything can happen in that length of time when you're in. And this is something that he did with an Alex Petrangelo. He, you know, he signed him to a seven year contract uh, in his early twenties and got some of the best years out of him. He did the same thing with Tarasenko who's coming. This is the last year of his eight year contract. He got himself a big one. And this is just the way that Doug Armstrong likes to operate. He, he believes in his cornerstone guys, guys that and these are guys that they drafted, get them young. And once they see the potential that they have, he's not afraid to commit to those longer term deals. And you see also historically what Doug Armstrong has done here when uh, when some of these blues players get into their 30s. He's he's not a guy, you know, he's not a guy that's trying to win a popularity contest here. I mean, you look at David Backus, that was one where he made a decision where he wasn't going to commit to him long-term now you're coming up on that same decision with Ryan O'Reilly and Vladimir Tarasenko and that's those are going to be decisions that are going to have to be made here uh, in the immediate near future uh, I think O'Reilly is the one that's got a better chance to stay because he's your team captain but you know let's face it he is you know 31 32 years old when when this contract is going to expire where are you going to go with that and this the, these are the directions that Doug Armstrong goes with uh, he's not afraid to commit to his young guys and uh, you can see by the AAV uh, these are the richest contracts the Blues have ever signed and uh, the trust that he has in these two uh, young players to carry this franchise forward yeah I mean you're far more connected uh, with that situation than, than we are up here but I mean just looking at it you know I, I'd be surprised if they don't retain Ivan Barbashev who has who's 26 years old has one year left before he's UFA with his emergence and how good he is I mean I guess are would you say that Vladimir Tarasenko's days are numbered in St. Louis it's just a matter of if he plays out the year if he gets traded at some point uh, Doug Armstrong has made it quite clear that um, he's under contract for one year and uh, he'll worry about uh, next off season when it comes. So 
I don't see a scenario right now, and obviously that can change. I don't see anything right now that would indicate that they would trade him because they certainly expect going into this year that they are going to be a contender and they are going to be a playoff team. And uh, that's certainly a piece that you would want to hang on to. And I don't think he's afraid to lose him on the open market because that's just going to free up another $7.5 million of cap space that he feels like he can use elsewhere on somebody that maybe can get you the same kind of production that's uh, a number of years younger. And I would tend to think that that's the way he's going to view this situation. Now, somebody on the outside might say, uh, why, why would you allow that scenario to play out? But that's just it. They, they have the belief in their young guys that they, that they bring up through the draft, and these two in particular. And they feel like that, uh, you know, next year on the open market, there may be some uh, players there that they feel like that could be suitable replacements. So he certainly isn't afraid to lose this player if he, if he chooses uh, to leave via free agency next, next offseason, which by all indications uh, is more than likely going to happen. So I think they're prepared for that. Anything can change, obviously. You never know what can happen. But, you know, they still have to operate under the salary cap system that, that we're under here. And by that, you, you, you have to believe that it's going to go up, but you're certainly not uh, – that's certainly not foolproof. So, um, you know, if it's going to come down to a, uh, a decision, if, if, if it does go in that direction, do you keep one or the other? I think Ryan O'Reilly is probably the more likely guy that's going to stay here in St. Louis. We know every team loves uh, to have depth scoring. You know, we don't see teams often have nine twenty goal scorers like the St. Louis Blues had last year. What do you think was the key in in that happening, and is it repeatable, Lou? It's going to be tough. I mean, yeah. well, obviously David Perron is gone, so mm-hmm. that 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 strikes uh, one one of those uh, twenty goal scorers off your list. But I just think it's uh, Craig Berube's. Uh, belief i guess is the best way to say it and and uh the way he utilized these guys he gave everybody a chance it's not like anybody any particular player on the team was top heavy i mean their their special teams uh and you know specifically the power play ranked in the top five and all those guys were able to get chances to thrive in scoring situations i think that's you know typically uh a prime example you would maybe think that ivan barbashev is a is a bottom uh, bottom six forward, maybe maybe a third line winger that you can utilize, and obviously can play center. But the Blues uh, had no uh, had no qualms about using him as a second line, a, a top line guy when need be. Mm-hmm. And I just at Brandon Saad, same thing. Uh, probably uh, on a on a regular day where everybody is healthy and available and ready to play is probably a third line winger for you. But was thrust into situations where he was getting first and second line minutes. And I just think that 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 ability to balance things out among these guys gave these guys that chance to thrive. And it was certainly something that they needed because without it, I don't think they would have uh, been able to put up the kind of numbers that they did last year because, you know, because of some of the shortcomings that they had with keeping the puck out of the net and uh, being more consistent on a defensive and from a goaltending standpoint. Of all the things that have kind of clicked for the Blues, especially last year, whether it's Robert Thomas, Kairou, Barbashev, the forward group, and all that, Tarasenko coming back, where does Justin Falk's reemergence and just showing the type of player he can be, you know, he showed that back in Carolina and he had a career year pretty much this, this past season. How big was his emergence this past year within all those storylines for the Blues? Huge, because, I mean, you, you kind of waited for that when they made that trade. Uh, 
you would, and a lot of us that cover the team, you you had that feeling that there may be a, you know a bit of an adjustment going from the east to the west, and I know that could be a cliche type of a thing, but uh, you know when you spend your whole career in the Eastern Conference and in, and in a system, it's tough. It's tough to break the the kind of play and the kind of habits that you have because. You know, when when I looked at that trade at the time and watching the way Carolina played and watching the way that, that the Blues run their systems was, I don't want to say completely different, but there were a lot of differences there that even a, a veteran guy like him had to adjust to. And, you know, Alex Petrangelo was still here in St. Louis. And, you know, you hear that, oh, this is, this is the guy that they bring in to replace a Petrangelo in case he leaves, which he wound up leaving. But... They're two different players, and I, and I just think that he needed that adjustment period. And then last year, I mean, Craig Berube just let him go, was able to use, utilize him in all situations. He was he was your guy that was on the ice uh, in a shutdown role defensively. He was the guy that was uh, given the opportunity to finally get some more time as a quarterback on the power play, and they have a number of guys that could do that. And obviously a uh, big time penalty killer. So I just think that his confidence continued to grow. He got off to a great start and that confidence never wavered. Now, whether he can put uh, the kind of season that he had uh, together again this year, that that's going to be tough to top, but if they can get any kind of production, anything, anything close to what they got from him last year, uh, I think the remainder of this contract is going to pay very well for this team. Uh, before we let you go, I, I want to make one prediction for the Blues, and, and remember this hopefully during the year at some point when you see Matthew Highmore play on that team. I know people don't have him making the team. I wouldn't be surprised if he makes the Blues. I mean, the guy brings a lot of speed, really good on the PK. He battles hard. I don't know. I, I think a lot of Blues fans are going to be surprised by the energy Matthew Highmore brings in training camp. You, you know, it's a, it's interesting that you bring that up because he was he was one of the players that that I kind of checked off there that uh, I was thinking to myself, you know what this this could be when I mentioned Diamond and a rough kind mm-hmm. of a player when they talk about Cairo, you know of of what they got out of the draft as a second round player. Yeah. I was thinking just from a from a value standpoint, this might be a Diamond and the rough kind of a player that they could use here and and use in that in that bottom uh, bottom six role because. He seems to fit that grit and sandpaper kind of a player that that would really fit this system, and I think Craig Ruby's going to at least give certainly give him a chance to thrive and, and like you said, make this team. Now, I don't know, I don't know if he's going to or not. He, he he's got a you know he's got a lot of competition there for that, and you know the Blues brought in Noah Chari uh, from Florida to obviously fill in that uh, bottom role as well, but. I think he's going to be a guy that I'm going to keep an eye on as training camp develops here just to see if uh, he catches the coaching staff's eye because I think he has the kind of game that would really fit the bottom bottom six role for this hockey team. Before we let you go, Lou, do you have a, a, a thought or uh, on Dakota Joshua, who uh, the Canucks signed, and uh, by speaking to some people here, they, they do have uh, – there's some excitement when uh, when you ask about Dakota Joshua around uh, around Canucks circles. I know he only played 30 games for the Blues last year, but do you have anything on Dakota? I can tell you this: he, he's going to bring it every night, and and pound for pound, he's probably as tough a player as the Blues had here last year. I mean, uh, very very willing to do any, anything you ask him to do in any any role. I mean, it's is he going to come in there and give you? 10, 15 goals a year, probably not, but 
he's going to be the kind of guy that um, the coaching staff there is going to rely on for that toughness and that grit, and he's going to bring it. And he and he's not going to be he's not going to be afraid to go toe to toe with anybody. So if that's if that's an area that uh, the Canucks coaching staff is really looking for, I think they found a good one there because he certainly fit the bill here. And it was I know. Uh, in some of the inner circles around here, uh, you talked about it was tough to see him leave because they felt like his play just continued to progress. I think the Canucks are getting themselves a good hockey player there, uh, somebody that uh, Bruce Boudreau is going to ha- find a job for in, in a bottom six role, of course. Hey, uh, Lou, really appreciate the time and the insights. Thanks for this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, there is Lou Korak, NHL.com. An interesting uh, thought there on Dakota Joshua, who – we know the Canucks are excited about. Yeah, I mean, uh, you hear Alvin talk about him a lot, too. And yep. they, they think he can bring more. And he has four career NHL goals, Dakota Joshua, in 42 games. Yep. So, I mean, hey, you know, we Three were... Three and 30 last year. That's not terrible out of a guy who was playing less than 10, 10 minutes a Yeah, night. I mean, we were talking with, with fast Eddie Gregory between the break about Alex Chason and, yep. you know, how much grief he took. And it's like, the guy scored over 10 goals. <laughs> if you're playing... the net. Yeah. I mean, but if you get, pucks. But, you know, it's hard to score 10 goals in an 82-game season. Yeah. Even for... If you're a fourth liner and you get 10 goals, that's good. It's hard to get 10 goals in a National Hockey League. Yeah, if you pay a guy you know, a couple million, you expect to get 10 goals. But, you know, for fourth liners, 10 goals is, is not an easy bar to clear. No. I don't know what the bar was that Canucks fans had for Chase on last year. Like, they expect him to be a 20-goal guy? No. I never understood that. I think the frustration was that he, he was, was getting, getting power play minutes over yeah. other guys. I think that's what – I mean, sure, I get it, but – I mean, Chase on last year scored 13 goals in 67 games. And that's why in the first segment, if you missed it, I was kind of advocating for bringing him back on the PTO. You need the depth. Yeah. Uh, so if you missed the first hour of Canuck Central, check it out on the podcast. But but uh, on Matthew Highmore, I want to spend a moment on Matthew Highmore. I, I understand why the organization walked away yeah. from Matthew Highmore and they couldn't do much with the other players with term on their roster. And the only thing they could turn over was, you know, letting Lamico and Highmore go and then replacing them with Lazar and Joshua and, and, and those sort of things. They needed a roster spot. So I, so I get you were limited in what you could do. But he was a guy that I would have liked to see remain in the fold. Yeah. Because one thing I saw from him towards the end of the year and as the season went on, he got better. He became a more impactful player. And he was he's not going to be a guy who scores a ton, but with the amount of chances he created and with him getting a bit better with it, I think he can be a fourth liner that can score 10, 12 goals in a, 10 goals in a season. Yeah. can bring you 20-some points and, and bring some speed. So I can see him easily going there, making the team, and being a nice fourth-line player for that organization. My, uh, I mean, my issue with uh, players like Highmore and, and even Mott because... They have a similar build, similar type of style of play. You love them when, like, you appreciate the role that they play, and they, they have success in that fourth-line role. They bring speed to the bottom of your lineup. They play well on the penalty yeah. kill. They also seem to be players that tend to get hurt because of, you know, not having the biggest body, playing that, never give up, always tenacious, always hard on the puck. But it's... It takes a toll on them. Yeah. And Highmore got hurt at inopportune times last year. Mott consistently could not play 82 games, despite the fact that mm-hmm. he was given a fairly decent role in his in his years here with the Canucks. It's it's tough, you know, when they're fringe players and they have a hard time staying healthy. Staying healthy is a skill, and I, I don't know if 
you know, a Highmore or a, or a Tyler Mott type really have that. No, so. I, I understand. And that's why I'm not talking about paying him a lot. Yeah. You're talking about minimum. For him, it's minimum, 750k, which he signed for. I mean, personally, I would have preferred to see them sign him instead of a Sheldon Dries, for yeah. instance. You know what I mean? And have him in the organization. But obviously, at that time, he's a guy that's probably wanted more. He was expecting a one-way deal at probably league minimum or higher, then doesn't get qualified and gets thrown for a bit of a whirlwind. Small little thing, but you know, I just wanted to mention Matthew Highmore, who I think for the Blues can be a be a nice little depth player for them. So uh, eight-year deals now in vogue. Uh, quick final thought on this. Uh, Jordan Cairo gets it. Robert Thomas got a big eight-year deal. Tim Stutzla got an eight-year deal. Jonathan Huberdo with an eight-year deal. This wasn't a, you know, <laughs> this wasn't an isolated thing here that happened over the course of the summer. And I think it's really easy to say, hey, si- sign eight-year deals. You know, like get get your your young guys on eight-year deals. And Thomas and Cairo are both coming off of um, bridge deals where they were being paid, I think they're getting paid $2.8 million, yeah. both of them. Like They're just keep signing identical contracts, these two guys. But they're coming out of their bridge deals, so this is their third contract, and they just had their breakout seasons. They weren't you know, top five picks that are thinking maybe double digits is really for them. This is, you know, this is a huge deal for these guys that were drafted later on, and I think it's the perfect type of situation for St. Louis. You have to remember, like, because I know a lot of people always bring it up. Well, the Canucks should have done it with with Elias Pettersson. And yeah, it's easy to say that. It's pretty obvious. But not every situation is equal, and not every player is open to signing that eight year deal when they're up for a new contract. Yeah, I mean, the issue with with Pettersson last time became even if the Canucks had the cap space, I'm not sure they were ready to make the commitment it would have taken to sign him, which would have been. 10, 11 million over yeah. a long-term deal. And people were like, we were talking about that back then. And people were like, that's insane. He shouldn't be getting that. And it's like, well, hey, I'm not saying he deserves that money now, but look at the trend. Anybody who has two years like he did his first couple of years and coming out of the entry-level contract with his stats, it's he Austin was closer Matthews to, level. Yeah, he was closer to the Marner-Matthews production coming out of his entry-level deal than, than anything else. Exactly. So what does that mean? That means his argument was to get that type of a contract. But because of the lockout year, which was tough, he didn't play well, and the team just wasn't ready to make that commitment to him. They weren't mm-hmm. ready to pay him that type of money. And they also had some cap um, complications. They had cap complications for long-term deals if they, if Pet- if they knew they had to pay Pedersen 10 or $11 million. If they, I remember their their argument was, we have cap space to sign both long term deals as long as we're on the same page as Pedersen on what his value is. Because they looked at Pedersen and said, on a long term deal, we're willing to maybe pay nine million or so. Mm-hmm. We're not sure when we want to do ten. So at the end of the day, that was a big sticking point. But if they had the cap space, well, maybe you know, it got done. Yeah. Uh, revisionist history, or looking back at history, uh, should say. It's uh, Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. Tomorrow, live listeners will hear us uh, at 11 a.m. We'll be live from Andrew Sherritt on uh, East First. So if you happen to be in the area, come by and say hi. You'll always be able to find it on the podcast. It's an overrated, underrated Wednesday coming tomorrow. Plus, Kevin Woodley, our regular Wednesday guest. want to shout out Fast Eddie Gregory producing this fine program today. My co-host, Satyar Shah. I'm Dan Richo. Thank you for listening to Canuck Central on Sportsnet 650.